It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. I am your host, Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out all of our wonderful links in the description on Linktree. This week's episode, from the files of Project Blue Book, part six. Pretty sure it's part six. I don't know. Whatever. We've done a bunch of these. Uh, It's probably my favorite type of episode to do because there are so many good cases from the files. Just, it never ends. It's just an unending amount. Okay, so there is a finite amount, obviously, because it's from historical documents, but still, there are just thousands and thousands of cases, and many, many cases that are marked as solved are not actually solved. They, the description, you know, the the cover card will say solved, but quite often, if you read the case file, it doesn't bear any resemblance to what they say the solution is. I grab my mousy poo here. All right, there we go. It was hiding behind my computer. All right, well, let's get started. First off, this topic was chosen by our wonderful supporters over on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, get some bonus content, some after hours, and even vote on upcoming episodes, go ahead and head on over to Patreon and support us there. All right, now just an announcement before we get started. I am going to be changing the name of the podcast coming up. I will put a separate announcement on the feed for that, so it won't be a surprise. You know, you won't have your your subscription wherever you listen through it to it. You might find it and think, well, that's weird. I never subscribed to that show. And the reason for that is there's guests I want to have on to the show. For example, people from the financial realm. Well, how am I going to get like a Wall Street financial person is never going to come on the Alien Conspiracy podcast, but they might come on a show with a little more neutral sounding of a name. So that's kind of my idea because there's certain guests that I've asked, you know, not that many of them, but certain guests I've asked to come on and they're like, ah, no, I don't have a tinfoil hat, dude. I can't come on that, which is not really what we do. So I don't think the name of the show is really, really represents what we do anyways, because we're not necessarily you know, Dan Aykroyd balls deep in this stuff. We do take a look at it. And when something to me or to the other host, when we say, you know, we don't believe something, we say that. Or if we have questions or doubts about a particular witness or whatever the case may be. So I think that the name of the podcast, people see that and they immediately think, you know, tinfoil hat. So I don't think that um, that's good for getting guests. I would like to have more guests on the show. And also, we're going to start doing some live video. Right now, I'm in the process of, you know, making a logo, another logo for the show and getting everything set up, which, hey, if you're a graphic designer, that's probably easy peasy. But for me, it's sort of not that easy to do, so it takes a little bit more time. But I'm I'm doing that, and uh, probably in a couple of weeks. Don't know exactly when, but before we do change over the name, I will put an announcement on the show so you guys are not surprised. All right. Now that we got that out of the way, 
let's get to the episode. I've decided to focus on reports from 1952, the same year as the infamous DC, Washington DC sighting, where we literally had UFOs flying over the nation's capital. The military was in a state of panic. Nobody knew what to do. It was pretty crazy. The DC event happened in July on the 19th and 20th, and then on the 26th and 27th. And if you look through the records, there's an incredible number of reports filed in 1952, in particular in July. Just as a comparison, 1951, if you go on Fold 3, just Google Fold 3 Project Blue Book, that's where you can find these things. In 1951, had over a thousand pages of reports. If you go to 1952, just in July, there's 2,000 pages of reports just in July alone. So something was up. People were seeing weird stuff in record numbers. Was it all just mass hysteria? This is kind of what the skeptics like you to think. They think, oh, they saw something in a newspaper or a magazine and everybody was kind of freaking out. So people were just reporting weird stuff that they didn't really see. They just read about it in a magazine and that makes you see UFOs, all mass hysteria, right? But... Uh, maybe people were really seeing weird stuff. I don't know. I don't know. Let's look at the cases. Let's look at the case files. Let's look at a few of them. Um, I didn't review thousands and thousands of pages to find quote unquote, the best cases. I literally just randomly clicked on cases and did the ones that I randomly clicked on. (laughs) I didn't reject any of them. So these are just the first cases that I so happened to look at from July 1952. And what I'm hoping to see here is, you know, is there mass hysteria? Is there, are there cases where things are blown out of proportion or are there weird things? Do we see different witnesses reporting similar things? I don't know. Let's find out. And just to say this, this is not a comprehensive look at all. This is barely scratching the surface, even of just July 1952. Unfortunately, it takes a while to talk about these. So, Um, We can only do a few of them, you know, so in the future, hopefully maybe we'll do some more from July, 1952. I don't know. Maybe get a clearer picture of what was going on. Of course, you're always welcome to go look for yourself. It's a fascinating read digging through these files. I recommend anybody interested in this topic, go look through those yourself. It's free. All you got to do is go to fold3.com and, uh, or just Google fold3.com blue book files. Actually, the website I found a little difficult to navigate, So just do that and you will find them pretty easily. It's a fascinating read. All right, let's start off here. Uh, I'm starting off with one from um, Acapulco, Guerrero, Mexico. The title card or the summary card is very difficult to read, but it looks like it says July 20th, two civilian witnesses. And the summary appears to say four objects, which looked like stars moved across the sky over Acapulco separately at two to five minute intervals. Objects blinked. Observers are newspaper reporter and columnist. This was reported by the columnist who worked for the Mexico City Daily Newspaper, Novedas, Novedas, N-O-V-E-D-A-D-E-S. Agent Redacted, how do you pronounce that? N-O-V-E-D-A-D-E-S. It's, it's a Mexican newspaper. Yes. No, Novedades? Agent, Agent Redacted is taking Spanish right now. Novedades? I don't know. 
Yeah, and he he correct. he got an A, and he can't pronounce it. So, our education system at work, I guess. <laughs> uh, so he doesn't know. I don't know. Novedadas. If you uh, speak Spanish, apologies for the pronunciation. Anyways, the columnist reported the sighting to the U.S. Embassy, and there's a reason for that, which we'll get to in a moment. So the two witnesses were walking along the beach, the Kalita Beach, when they saw a very bright object, the size and general appearance of a star, travel with the high velocity from north to south. The light blinked on and off at one-second intervals. And here's a quote from the report. Miss Redacted stated that she had the impression that it was rolling over and over and that one side of the object was strongly illuminated, the other side dark. What does that mean? No idea, (laughs) but it's a pretty interesting description. It took the object 30 seconds to disappear over the southern horizon. Now, you might think that sounds like a meteor or a satellite. I doubt it was a satellite, because satellites don't tend to blink like that, and they don't look like they're rolling. And meteors go much much faster than that. It would not take a meteor 30 seconds to go horizon to horizon. And anyways, they usually burn up in a very short amount of time. So they wouldn't be able to go to horizon horizon because of that. I've never seen one go to horizon horizon. Maybe somebody has, I don't know, but I've never heard of such a thing. So already this is sounding kind of strange. Now, one minute later, she saw a second object on the Northeast horizon and moved overhead like the first object disappearing on the southwest horizon. A couple minutes later, she saw a third object going from northwest to southeast, and a minute later, she saw a fourth object going west to east. All objects were similar and took about 30 seconds to go horizon to horizon. The sighting was between 2215 or 1015 and 1030 at night. The altitude is unknown, but the witness felt that the objects were very, very high up. They didn't stop, they had no trail, they didn't leave any exhaust, and they did not make any noise that the witness was able to hear, at least. The witness also spoke with another man from the newspaper who saw a flying saucer two weeks before at three in the morning. The witness had previously been skeptical of UFOs, but now believed they were real. And unfortunately, we don't have any more details about the second witness who saw a flying saucer two weeks before. That's all we have in the report. I doubt it was ever reported to Project Blue Book. She contacted, after the sighting, the witness contacted various observatories and other government agencies in Mexico, and one of them told her that the United States was doing a UFO study, and that's why she contacted the U.S. Embassy. She wrote an article about the sighting for her newspaper, which is supposed to be enclosed in the Blue Book file. It says right on the file, it says, enclosed. But I didn't see it, so it's not there. It was lost, or maybe it's in a different file. I've seen that many, many times. Files put into other files accidentally, or parts of files, or just entire files put in the wrong file. I've seen that before, too. We'll talk about one of the cases later where that's the case. Um, So yeah, anyway, I don't speak Spanish anyway, so it doesn't really matter that much if the article's in there. But still, it'd be cool to see the newspaper article that they're talking about. It's just fun Fun little historical object. She made a drawing of the paths of the objects and they go, the the lines go like north, south, east, west, kind of making a cross. And then they bisect those crosses. So northwest to southeast and northeast to southwest, all crossing in the middle. 
And it, it kind of looks, if you can imagine just like a pie cut into eight slices, that's kind of what it looks like. It's, I don't know. It looks, it's kind of bizarre. If it, it can't be a meteor shower because meteor showers don't act like that. Right. It's just a really weird thing. We, I don't think we had airplanes back then that could go fast enough to go from horizon to horizon in 30 seconds without making a noise. It's just a really weird sighting. So who knows what happened? Really interesting, really weird. And that's all we know about it. All right. Agent Ether has joined us. Hi, Agent Ether. Good evening. Would you mind pointing the microphone? Yeah. Cause okay. Microphone. Oh, it might help if I plugged your microphone in to the soundboard. <laughs> that, okay. Okay. Hold on. Um, intermission people, a brief intermission while I plug in Agent Ether's microphone and hit the edit flag. Try again. Let's try that again. All right. Agent Ether is with us. How's it going, Agent Ether? Well, I had a very long day at work, but I am here and I'm excited to be here. I feel like I've missed so many episodes and Project Blue Book is definitely one of my favorite topics. I love this one. I know. I feel like Friday night's so hard for everybody. It might be easier if we moved it to like Saturday or something. It actually would not have mattered. I still would have had to work overtime. It's not the day for me. But it would be fun to do it, let's say, Saturday morning when I'm not at work at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be, that's what I'm saying. It'd be easier to do on a Saturday, maybe. And then, you know, we could partay on Friday because everybody's out partaying on Friday, you know. I'm partaying right now. I well, know. I don't know where my wine went, but I was partaying. We're partaying. I am partaying of a Pliny the Elder. All right. So do you want me to do some more? Because you just have one case file, right? Well, the problem is that I started doing one case file, which led to another case file. That happens. Which led to another case file. Yep. And they were all pretty short. And then I got to a really long one. And I thought to myself, this is like a whole episode. Just this one case file. Yeah. I'm never going to get through this. This is amazing. Yeah. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Well, maybe we could do that as a bonus episode sometime. Yeah, for sure. But... Initially, since Agent Anderson was doing a specific date, I figure I'd look at the month, you know, around there. Okay, but not of, July. But not July. I didn't want to, you know, overstep my boundaries, step on your toes, whatever. Oh, there's so many cases. I doubt, even if you just randomly chose cases, I very seriously doubt you would pick the same ones as me. So I was like, I'll do June. I'll do right before July. Okay. Well, unless you did the, there, the cases are alphabetical. So the first case I did is just the first case alphabetically. So... If you did that, then you might do the same one as me. Other than that, there's no way. That's exactly what I did. Did you? No. Oh. <laughs> so you did You did a case from Acapulco, Mexico. No, no, I did not. Oh, good. I, uh, you should be all right then. Uh, let me put down this cryptid. He's very cranky. And let me move here. Okay. <clears throat> oh, now you moved and the mic is pointing oh, at here. your shoulder. Is that better? That's much better. Thank you. All right. So now I was interested, so I just plugged in the date, and I pulled up the first file that I could find, and it was from the Randolph Air Force Base in Texas. It was a 50-minute ground visual sighting on June 12th at 2.30. Now, to be specific, I think that's when he actually called in the... I think that's when the witness actually called in was... I think... (laughs) Oh, my God. It's fine. I'll just leave it in. Everybody loves to hear dogs barking, I'm sure. Oh, my God. So the witness called in. Shut up. Okay, that's quite a lot of barking. (laughs) I might have to edit that out. Jeez. All right, hold on. Let's wait a second see if he's done. You done? Okay. 
So the witness called in on June 12th at 2.30 p.m. And this was someone from the, oh my God. This was someone from the branch at the Aero Medical Lab, WADC, which would later be renamed the Aerospace Lab. And I guess they conducted research into the medical and physiological um, effects of human flight. So at first that might mean airplanes, jets, and then later it would go on to mean spacecrafts, spacecrafts. Okay. It was actually founded in 1934. And I think WADC is Wright Air Development Center, but I'm not sure. I just looked up acronyms on the googly machine and that was like the only thing it spit out. There's so many acronyms and the hard thing too is they change over the years too. So Well, that was literally the only one I could find and that made sense. So. Okay. So this was a Captain TDY, temporary duty assignment. He was not very familiar with the area. And he looks up, there's like a drive-in movie theater. Don't find those anymore. And off to one side, he spots 15 to 20 objects all moving differently. Hmm. They come in and out of view. He said they were three times as bright as Venus and four times as fast as an F-86. Wow. So Venus is the brightest star in the sky when it's up, I'm pretty sure, right? Yeah, so these were pretty bright objects, so whatever that's they were. really bright. And they're about 1 20th the size of a full moon. They traveled back and forth, up and down, and one was traveling in a perfect sign pattern. They would come into view and then disappear. And this was at a CAVU, or Ceiling and Visibility Unlimited Condition. Love all these acronyms. Have you heard of that? C A V U. Yeah, this was a military report from from military personnel, so it was very official looking. Lots of yeah. fancy terms. Yeah, there's a lot of them. And then in uh, handwriting at the bottom, it says the actual date of the sighting was May twenty first. Okay, not June twelfth. But still, same same year, that year. And so the conclusion that was reached based on this data was that it was birds. Because, you know, there's more than one. It was a group. They were <laughs> and going around, so it must be I birds. See, I see birds at night all the time that are three times as the brightness of Venus. <laughs> well, it was actually 2.30 in the afternoon. Oh, okay. So <laughs> even more improbable. You know, it's super shiny. It's 2.30 in the afternoon. Bunch of stuff traveling in a group in different random odd patterns. One traveling in a sign pattern. And birds. Yeah, because why not, right? Well, who's going to call about a flock of birds? It's not like, you know, in the distance I saw some specks and they're moving around. There were a group of them. I don't know what they were. I'm just going to call in. Like, this is so specific. Yeah. Birds. Well, this... Uh, this week's bonus episode that I did was on Project Blue Book Special Report number 14. And there's part of that report that pretty much illustrates that these researchers are all coming from, they're starting from a position of, this is all nonsense. None of it are UFOs. It's right. all stuff that we can explain. We just have to figure out a way to explain it rather than taking the data at face value. They don't. They have a starting point. You know, it's so funny you should mention Special Report 14. Yeah. I'm doing this. I'm going down the rabbit hole, and I'm like, what on earth is this aeromedical lab? I was like, I wonder if there's more sightings around this space lab. So I'm looking, and I find that 
One Paul Fritz used to work for this facility, and he's made a handwritten request to Captain Harden at Wright Air Force Base to conduct research. Hmm. He was a consultant, and he was responsible for interviewing some people who had sightings because he wanted to study the physiological responses somehow. It was tied to that, Hmm. psychological responses. I don't know. It was not clear. But it had something to do with his research. And he said, now that special report 14 has come out, I want to take those, you know, interviews. I want to take my data and I want to compare it to your results and see if they're similar. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, can I have, can I have permission basically? And he mentions a questionnaire. He said, I do not have a copy of the questionnaire that I used when interviewing these witnesses. So if I could also get a copy of a blank one, that would be fantastic. I'd love to publish those results in some sort of scientific journal or magazine. I'm happy to clear it at the military level. Um, I'm a professor of psychology. I'm a director of aviation aviation psychology lab at Ohio University. He sat on an Air Force advisory board and at the NACA Committee for Flight Safety. So super qualified, top-level brass, interested in doing real solid research. Hmm. So then you get a series of pages and their letters up and down the different branches of government trying to get him authorization to conduct said research. There's informal discussions between him and Captain Harden and Captain Gregory. And then interestingly enough, Project White Stork gets mentioned. I have not heard of that. You haven't heard of White Stork? I have not. So. <laughs> oh boy, here we go. Oh boy. No, I hadn't either. I I actually assumed you that you had heard of that. So some people say it is the predecessor of Project Blue Book. Really? Yeah. Because the predecessor to Project Blue Book were Project Saucer and Project Grudge. Well, it was, that's what it said. Huh. That's what it said. And I'd never heard of, of White Stork before. So then I was, of course, trying to find out more about it. And I, I didn't see a lot of information just out there on the World Wide Web. When I went to www it, I saw lots of stuff about conservation of white storks. But, you know, this was way back when. So one thing I would definitely like to do is go back through Project Blue Book and see if I can find more references to this uh, to this project. Because one of the letters goes on to state that anything that he writes is going to go through Project White Stork. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm searching the Black Vault right now. Ooh. For White Stork. No results for Stork. No results for White Stork. Um, that's really cool. See, that's, that's the kind of stuff you can find if you're willing to dig through these documents. You can find stuff like that. So I did a cursory search as well through the Blue Book files, and and I didn't see anything. But I want to look more because, like I said, I didn't have much time this week to do my research. But uh, that's fascinating, right? A whole nother project. What file did you find that in? I don't know. I can send you the page later. Yeah, send me the page later because I want to email John Greenwald to see if he's ever heard of this. Oh, that's fun. That's fun. Okay. 
Because he might, it's possible that he's never heard of this. That guy knows everything. So if he hasn't heard of it, there you go. It might be time for a FOIA request, you know? And he is the king of FOIA requests. That would be really awesome. Yeah. Put my name on it. Yeah. <laughs> Stamp me on there somewhere. Agent Ether. Requested by Agent Ether. It, hey, if they can be classified, so can I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the next page is a letter. I don't know who it's from, but they're complaining that the special report is classified, not classified, but it's also not readily available to the public. You have to personally go visit the Pentagon in order to get a copy. Yeah, they do stuff like that. <laughs> and then uh, there's a, oh my, hold on, my thing just went to sleep. Well, that like the blue book files themselves are not readily available. They put them in a remote place on purpose, and I know this because I think it was the Bullender memo. They specifically said in there, "Let's put it somewhere where it's hard to get to, so people don't come and look at it." <laughs> so there was response, of course, by the committee, and they said, "Hey, we printed a hundred whole copies. Wow, a hundred hundred whole copies, and we distributed them to the normal, appropriate, regular channels. They're expensive." To produce. Oh, yeah. They're expensive, so... Paper is so expensive. We're not intentionally withholding information, and anybody's welcome to come and get them, but it's very prohibitive in cost to just print them and send them out. So scientists, university researchers are always welcome to pay and request these files, but very few individuals have, and... The letter states only eight to ten people have actually gone to the Pentagon and request Pentagon. The Pentagon. <laughs> what the hell's a Pentagon? I don't know. It sounds interesting though. <laughs> I made up a word. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Very few people have gone to the Pentagon to uh, to read it, and they said the reason why is it's it's very technical. It's very long. No one's really interested. They just want the summary, which they're very happy to provide. Yeah, you know why. No, why? Because the summary doesn't match the data. And then I wanted to, then they attached parts of the report and I wanted to read said parts, but it just went on and on and on and on as things often do. And I was like, I can't read through all of this and still come say hello to our listeners. So I did yeah. not. Yeah, it's, I'm going to have to do a part two for that because I thought it was going to be about an hour, but then I started, I barely got through anything. I'm like, wow, it's already been an hour. So it's definitely a two-parter for the report 14. So that's what I got. That's what I got this week. That's all of it? Yeah. I didn't, I told you, I didn't. Okay. Okay. No, that's cool. That's I didn't cool. have enough time. Okay. So I did, Joe, just look through Project Blue Book and I do find a couple references to Project White Stork. Huh. So I'm looking, not a ton, not a ton, maybe one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, maybe 10, 12. Well, total. So I'd, I'd be interested to read a little bit more about that, see what's what. Yeah, that's, that's exciting stuff. We should look into that a little bit further. A White Stork report is attached. White Stork report. Then I don't see it, but it's attached. Yeah. All right. Pretty awesome. All right. So maybe I'll look more into that for our next Blue Book episode. See what sure. I can find. 
That's what pretty else? that's pretty exciting. It's not every day you find a new project that you never heard of before. And yeah. not only that, a project where if you Google it, nothing comes up. That's unusual for sure. Before I get started on my next one, I just want to point out that you mentioned the F-86. Yes. Okay, so just for all you aviation nerds or wannabe aviation nerds out there, the F-86 is is the F-86 Sabre. And I'm a huge aviation nerd, so I love this stuff. Um, I, I'm not like super knowledgeable, but I just I just love this stuff, like reading about this stuff. And, you know, like the, the coolest guest we had on was the aviation historian, um, James Goodall. It was so much fun to have him on. But so anyways, the North American F-86 Sabre, some called, sometimes called the Sabre Jet, is a transonic jet fighter aircraft produced by North American Aviation. The Sabre is best known as the United States first swept wing fighter that could counter the swept wing Soviet MiG-15 in high speed dogfights in the skies of the Korean War, 1950 to 1953, also known as the Forgotten War. Fighting some of the earliest jet-to-jet battles in history, considered one of the best and most important fighter aircraft in that war, the F-86 is also rated highly in comparison with fighters of other eras. Although it was developed in the late 1940s and was outdated by the end of the 1950s, the Sabre proved versatile and adaptable and continued as a frontline fighter in numerous air forces. So that's just a little tidbit, just a little teaser of aviation history there. Um, The article is quite long and it's beyond the scope of this particular article for sure oh look at these pictures gun camera film from an f-86 okay look at this okay i'm not going to get into all that man this is just too nerdy for this show <laughs> i'll have to close i'll go ahead and close that page down now oh what is this <laughs> more gun foot oh look at this it's an indian gnat being shot down by a paf f-86 of the number 26 okay okay i'm going to close it. i don't need to be talking about this all right, anyways, back to the show. I just, I love that stuff. So I like to talk about it a little bit when I get the opportunity, which, you know, comes up once in a while. All right, next up, I have a case from Boston, Massachusetts. Boston, Massachusetts, for those of you who are unfamiliar with United States geography, it's on the East Coast. It's north of New York and south of Maine and New Hampshire. So it's in the northeast part of the United States. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not super familiar with geography of other places. If you told me a specific place from a country, I may or may not be familiar with it. So I just assume, you know, if you're listening, you may not be familiar with the geography of the States either. So there you go. That's why I'm doing Is that. anyone, even if you live in the States? I know, right? Maybe not. I mean, not. honestly, do you know where Ohio is? Like it's in the Midwest somewhere surrounded by other States. Yeah. Like out there by Kansas, sort of, and there's tornadoes. It's one of those states, I don't know, it doesn't have a super identifiable shape, you know? Alaska, California, Texas, Hawaii, Florida, these are states where you can remember them because they have a good shape. (laughs) Then you got all your states like, you know, uh, Nevada to a degree, but like Colorado and, you know, stuff like that, Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, they're just like friggin' squares. How are you going to remember that? You know, just a bunch of Friggin' squares. I can't remember. Ohio is not quite a square. It's sort of like a, I don't know. It's like a goofy looking something, but still, it's not super distinct. Not like Florida or something like that anyways. All right. Anyways, <laughs> uh, Boston, Massachusetts. This one happened on July 22nd at 1115 PM. 
The witness filled out the standard questionnaire in great detail. If you're interested to look this one up yourselves, it's pretty easy to find, but I don't want to go over that with a fine tooth comb, mostly because reading that handwriting gives me a headache. <laughs> but here's a typed out witness statement from the report. On July 22nd, 1952, from approximately 11.15 p.m., buddy, what a jerk, those dang cryptids. All right. On July 22nd, 1952, from approximately 11.15 p.m. to 11.26, DST, a flying object was observed, which interfered with my 23,000-foot balloon run at that time. This object was followed with a theodolite as it appeared very bright in comparison with the dimming balloon lighting unit. And a theodolite is sort of like a telescope. It's an instrument you can use to like measure stuff as you're watching it, basically, you know, angles and that sort of thing. It was not seen with the naked eye because it seemed more important to follow it closely with the theodolite and record the angles and change of color. This object was oval or disc-shaped, with colored lights of red, green, and blue arranged horizontally. The colored lights, when clearly visible, appeared rectangular in shape with rounded color corners. The brightness of the lights seemed to depend on the angle of observation as the object moved. During the 11 minutes observed, the object, which was southeast of the station, stayed within the reciprocal azimuth angles of 118 degrees to 130 degrees and angles of elevation of 20.5 degrees to 23.0 degrees. The object made three complete circles in that area. It was not moving very fast. As the object moved, the colored lights seemed to fade and a blue-white light was observed. When seen through the theodolite, this blue-white light was as bright as a star of the first magnitude. The object appeared to be circling the 100-gram balloon, and the observer estimated that the object was at least 10 miles from the point of observation at WBAS Boston and at a height of 25,000 feet when first seen, and it later climbed to a height of 35,000 feet. It seemed unlikely to the observer that jet planes could turn repeatedly in such an area as recorded. The observer checked with the airport traffic control tower and the air route traffic control center to see if any planes were holding in the area. Negative replies were received from all concerned. The next page in the file is a spot intelligence report. Let's see. Is that this one here? I printed it out. Let's see. Because... A lot of typing. <laughs> All right. So, this is what I'm talking about. Sometimes you find stuff just kind of crammed in on other files. I think that's what it is. Okay. Anyway, spot intelligence report from OSI, the subject unclassified unknown objects sighting of unconventional aircraft, 2315 to 2400 hours, 22nd July 1952, Boston, Massachusetts, to Director of Special Intellig Investigations. Headquarters, USAF, Washington 25, D.C. Synopsis. On the 23rd July 1952, reports of sightings of unidentified phenomena between 2315 and 2400 hours, 22nd July 1952, were received from five separate sources. No activity or condition developed that accounts for sightings. 
And 2315 to 2400 hours would be, any guesses, AGD? I wasn't paying attention. Oh, okay. I <laughs> know <laughs> I found this reference on Project White Stork and, and then I, I was. No, I always, I always do it. that. So it's fitting that you. And I always attention. don't know. <laughs> That'd be 1115 to midnight. All right. Details. At 0800 hours, 23 July 1952, a telephone call was received at Detachment B Headquarters, 1st District OSI, from the duty officer, 108th CIC Detachment, Boston Army Base, relaying a report from Lieutenant Commander W.J. Adams, Squadron Naval Air Station, Quincy, Massachusetts, to the effect that he and several others had observed unidentified phenomena during the night of 22nd July 1952. At 1400 hours, 23 July 1952, um, I think that's Guy M. Uh, Guy M. Bailey? Yeah, Guy M. Bailey, weather observer, U.S. Weather Bureau, Logan Airport, Boston, Massachusetts, advised that he observed strange lights between 2315 and 23. 26 hours, 22nd July, 1952. Um, additional calls reporting similar phenomena were received from redacted. And then it says some word heed him. I think I can't really read it. Redacted, uh, Roseland Dale and redacted West Roxbury, all in Massachusetts results of personal interviews with redacted and redacted by special agent Julius B. Papanega, on 23 July 1952, were set forth. This district office does not contemplate interviews of redacted and redacted unless your headquarters directs otherwise. Two, information provided by Lieutenant Commander Adams. All right, let's see. And then we have some further descriptions here. Would you like to pause here, Agent Ether? Did you find something exciting for us? I found the project. You found it. I did. Okay, let's hear about it. I don't know if it's as exciting, though. Oh, as, I'm excited. As leaving it to the to our imaginations. Should we do it on After Hours? No, no, no. It's very short. Okay. So I found this little blurb on this website, and it doesn't. It's not official because it's not like Fold Three or from the Black Volts or something. But it's an overall description, and uh, I I think it's a good. Um, brief summary of what it actually was. So there was a private contractor, the Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, and they worked in um, alongside the Air Technical Intelligence Center at Wright Air Force Base to collect and analyze UFO sighting reports. And what they did was statistical analysis, statistical surveys of the reports to try and find patterns to determine if flying saucers could represent technological developments not known in our country. In other words, you know, a different country, not necessarily from outer space. So it was completed and it was part of the special report 14. Really? Yeah. So it was... um, I didn't see anything about that in special report 14. I read through the whole thing. It was a, a budget item. Huh. It's just this tiny little project budget item codename Project Stork. Maybe I missed it. It had a broad range of intelligence-related science and technological research that the ATIC required in the course of its studies of foreign aeronautical hardware, such as chemical, meteorological, engineering analysis, nuclear materials research, 
aircraft performance estimates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Stork was what it was called at first. It was changed to White Stork and eventually to Have Stork, <laughs> the Have series designation assigned to projects. Um, oh, Have Stork. Have Why didn't you stork. say Have Stork? I know all about Have because Stork. Because. Just kidding, I don't. You do. <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, So, let's see. Blah, 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 blah. It looks like the Stork UFO study was the Air Force's most significant effort to pin down some sort of scientific credibility for these UFO reports. They compile data on so many incidences, thousands and thousands, but they found it was inconclusive. I guess they created these punch cards Yes. Yeah, so there's these punch cards, and they're not quite computerized. It's like this high-speed mechanized keyword sorting. I haven't heard of these cards. Have you? Yeah, that's what they did for Project 14. Oh, that's so weird. Okay, so I I guess that's who who did them. There's even a picture of one in the back of of the report. Let's see. IBM's famous perforated punch cards. I I don't know anything about this. This is fascinating. Yeah, it's pretty interesting stuff. So it it concludes that it is not possible to derive a verified model of a flying saucer from the data we have gathered to date. This point is important enough to emphasize. Out of 4,000 people who said they saw a flying saucer, sufficiently detailed descriptions were given in only 12 cases. Okay, I that is in the report. I don't remember them calling it Project White Stork, but I do remember that from the report. I haven't had a yes. chance to talk about that yet because I didn't get that far in my episode, but that's coming. I am going to talk about that in the next one or the one after that maybe. I don't know. <laughs> so, so there it is. Awesome. So there it is. The the statistical analysis performed was given the name Project Stork. That's pretty dang cool. So, so, yeah, that's why there's so few references, though, if it was just some budget, line item budget. Right, and it was not an ongoing pro- project. It was No, it was specific, it sounds like, for the special project. Yeah, they opened it, they did their study, and then they closed it. It was not, a go- on, it was not going on for decades like Project Blue Book. <laughs> yes. Okay, interesting. Interesting, interesting. That's really cool. Well, hey, you learn new stuff all the time, right? And I did send you the link to the page where I found it, just in case you're still curious. Okay, yeah. Well, we know what it is now, though. And um, I know where the parts of that report are. I mean, I read through the report. So, uh, I mean, that solves the mystery, right? No no point in bothering John Greenwald with that one. (laughs) (laughs) He would have gotten your request and been like, yeah. (laughs) No, he seems like a pretty cool guy. I mean, you know. I'm going to email him just for fun. I don't think he'd be rude. Let's let's go to happy hour. He's he's a busy guy. Don't waste his time. No, I'm gonna tell him we gotta go to happy hour. Everybody likes happy hour. Oh yeah, let's do happy hour. That sounds like fun. <laughs> All right, let's get back to this UFO report. All right, so we were talking about okay, here's the next page. We're talking about uh this particular UFO sighting in Boston, Massachusetts. The description. Two round bluish-green lights, much more brilliant than a first-magnitude star, having no aerodynamic features and moving without sound or exhaust trail. Observer could not estimate size, speed, or altitude of lights. Formation. One directly behind the other and at the same level. 
Adams could not estimate the actual distance between the lights, but stated that when looking at them over his outstretched arms, a hand's breadth covered the space between them. This formation did not change. Maneuvers. The lights were sighted at an angle of 45 degrees above the horizon in the uh, southeastern sky. They moved northwest until directly over the point of observation, then reversed their direction without apparent turning, moved southeast at 45 degrees, southeast 45 degrees, again reversed their direction, passed over the observer, and began a wide a uh, wide arc toward the northeast. All maneuvers were on the same plane without any noticeable change of altitude. And D, manner of disappearance. Lights were not dimmed by distance, but the disappearance was abrupt, as if the object had been switched off suddenly. The load light disappeared first, no lead, the lead light disappeared first, well, the uh, something second one, it's hard to read this. Sorry, sorry, people. Well, the second one continued until reaching the approximate point at which the first disappeared and then went out. Birds probably was just birds, yeah. Time cited, uh, redacted, who was on duty as officer of the day, received a call from East Weymouth, Massachusetts, advising that two very bright lights were moving in the direction of the Naval Air Station. He immediately went outside and cited the phenomena. The time was 23.45 EDT. The maneuvers described lasted about three minutes, or until 23.48 EDT. Okay, um, let's see. Identifying information on observer. Lieutenant Commander Redacted has served 12 years active duty in the U.S. Navy, primarily as a pilot. He is presently performing duties of Assistant Personnel Officer at uh, Squanta Squantum. He stated that fail falling stars, jet exhaust trails, searchlight reflections, and navigational lights on conventional aircraft are all very familiar to him, and that the phenomena described was distinctly different from any of these and existing condition that might account for sightings. None, no physical evidence exists and no interception action was taken. Pretty cool sighting, huh? Mm-hmm. All right. There's more. There's also a motorcycle outside. <laughs> Hopefully my software will take care of that. All right. Uh, redacted. Advised, this is a paragraph about weather conditions, but it was clear, good visibility, nice and clear. I'll just say that. Uh, redacted advised that Sergeant Cavu, hmm? clear and visibility unlimited. Cavu. Yes, Sergeant Anthony DiNallo, um, let's see, Marine Air Detachment, Squantum, observed the phenomenon with him and that uh, eight millimeter 1C. What is this? I don't know. Oh, it's a no, no. It's um, it's a rank. I can't read it. It's too too messed up. Uh, Rolf Hellum, also of Squantum, observed it from a point one mile south of the station, but at the same time, on twenty third July nineteen fifty two, Dinalo and Hellum 
were separately interviewed by Special Agent Julius B. Papanega. The uh, descriptions received from them did not differ from that given by Adams and provided no additional information. Dun, dun, dun! During his tour, tour of duty, Adams received a total of six telephone calls from the following persons who, according to Adams, reported substantially the same thing. And then he gives a bunch of redacted names and their locations. So the locations were South Weymouth, um, East Weymouth, Roselandale, Weymouth Landing, Cambridge, who observed the lights from Wollington Beach near Weymouth and redacted in Roxbury. Interviews with these persons are not contemplated unless your headquarters directs otherwise. And then the next information provided by redacted. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A description, four small lights, red and green at times, completely enveloped by a single bluish white light, much brighter than a star of first magnitude. So this was a little different. This is four small lights. So I wonder if this person must have seen it up close or something. I don't know. Um, Shape, sound, exhaust, altitude, and speed were not determinable. Formation, none. Appeared as one body only. Huh. That's interesting. So it must be four small lights on one object, I'm guessing. I don't know. Maneuvers. Appeared to make three complete elliptical circles at constant altitude within an area of 22 degrees apparently slowed to almost a stop before changing direction. Time cited from 2315 to 2326, uh, 22 July 1952. Observer had to abandon the light to prepare weather report and was prevented from making further observation because of other duties. Manner Manner of observation, object was not visible to the naked eye, but was observed through a weather bureau theodolite. So I'm guessing this is the one we already talked about, just typed up differently in this report. Unless it's a different weather station guy looking through a theodolite, that's always also possible. We don't know because the name is redacted. A telescopic instrument used for tracking weather balloons. Uh, make and lens power could not be determined from markings or from observatory personnel. However, They advised that balloons 18 foot in diameter could be seen through the instrument at a distance of 50 miles. That is so helpful. (laughs) All right. Now, the last little bit from this particular report, at least the part I printed. um, Let's see. Existing condition that might account for sighting none. No physical evidence exists and no interception action was taken. Action. Two copies of this report have been forwarded to the Commanding General, Air Material Command, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Dayton, Ohio. Attention, um, MCIS? Looks like MCIS. No further action contemplated by this district office. So there you have a couple of different reports. Um, Multiple witnesses an object that's moving in a way that our planes don't normally do. It's just a really good sighting, right? Let's see. I have a little bit more on this one, but uh, it's getting a little late. So I'll go ahead and skip that. It's more, it's very similar. Um, Now page 20 of this file is a cover card for maybe a different sighting (laughs) for a sighting of July 25th and 30th. 
1952. Conclusion. Can you guess what the conclusion is without hearing anything about it? Venus. Close. Mars. No. Oh. Colder. I'm colder? Weather balloon. Oh. Or just balloon. I thought you meant a colder planet. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, a colder planet? Which one? Okay, I guess I didn't phrase that all that well. (laughs) Getting colder, getting colder. All right, so we have a possible explanation for this sighting. This is, I don't know why there's a separate cover card in the middle of the file. I don't recall seeing that before. But they say there was, uh, what do you think they said caused this file? Caused the weather balloon? I mean, caused the sighting. I thought you said it was a weather balloon. That's what it says on the cover card. Okay. And what do you think their explanation for that is? Like, why was it a weather balloon? Yeah, because obviously a weather balloon's not zipping around like that, right? Oh, a broken weather balloon. Close, no. They say that it was an F-94B maneuvering in the area using its afterburners. What? (laughs) I know, right? And because I'm an aviation nerd, I'll go ahead and talk about the F-94B, which is the the Starfisher. No, no, Starfire. This is a first-generation jet aircraft. So the Lockheed F-94 Starfire was a first-generation jet-powered all-weather day-night interceptor of the United States Air Force, a twin-seat craft. It was developed from the Lockheed T-33 Shooting Star trainer in the late 40s. It reached operational service in May 1950 with Air Defense Command, replacing the piston-engine North American F-82 twin Mustang in the all-weather interceptor role. All right, and again, there is a wonderful article here, and I would love to read through it all, but I'm sure I would lose all my listeners if I did that, so I'll go ahead and skip that stuff and leave it at that. <laughs> but, all right, so they so what they're saying is that the F-94 was zipping around the area with its afterburners on or off intermittently, and that they, they said that the afterburners were lit, power advanced, and retarded. So in other words, it was slowing down and speeding up, and this could account for what people saw. I'm skeptical. It doesn't match what some of the witnesses reported, but anything's possible. And here from the report, Mr. Redacted is likely unfamiliar with the appearance of the afterburner blast of a jet fighter as it appears at night and during maneuvers. Now remember, jets were fairly new at this time, so that is possible. I mean, we're talking about somebody who worked with the military, probably. We don't know for sure because we're talking about Mr. Redacted here. But somebody who, you know, I think this is the person with the weather balloons. So they're launching balloons and they're looking at the sky all the time. I don't know. I find it hard to believe this is the first time they ever saw an airplane with afterburners. And they also did describe seeing an oval or disc-shaped object. So I'm not like buying this 100%, but let's consider it. Let's Why not consider it? You know, even though... I think that there are holes in this explanation. It's possible. Anything's possible. All right. Reference inclusion two. After considerable detailed conversation with a pilot making the sighting, the base weather officer was conferred with. It is the opinion of the undersigned, the base, Otis Air Force Base. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's time. All right. I'm going to, I guess I'll have to take an intermission, huh? I can do it. You can do it? Okay. Thanks. All right, that's uh, it's now time to give our cryptids their nightly cheese, <laughs> which we have to do to get them to take one of them to take his medicine. Agent Ether is taking that. Normally, it's my turn at night, her turn in the morning, but you know we're recording, so there's that. 
All right. So after considerable detailed conversation, where was I? It is the opinion of the undersigned, weather officer, and now the reporting pilot, that the object cited and reported as unidentified was a weather pilot balloon. Uh, I'm not sure what that means, a weather pilot balloon. I'm not sure if that means it was a balloon, a weather balloon, or a balloon being dragged by the plane um, or the jet. I'm not sure. Further, it is the opinion of all three that the object, resolved as a pilot balloon, was most likely released from Westover Air Force Base, Massachusetts. Because of this conclusion, no further report was made on the object. And there are some pilot details here too, but uh, maybe I'll skip over that. It's there's so there's some stuff in the file where the time, the the time that so there's some pilots who had a sighting as well on the same night, but the time is not the same, right? Their timestamp is um, a little different. It's o fourteen seven o o one four seven Zulu, and that's actually GMT which is uh, four or five hours different. So those times, I don't, I mean, unless I'm doing my math wrong, um, well, maybe it could line up. I'm not sure. But no, the time doesn't really line up, though, for when the pilots had their sighting. So I think that's a completely different sighting. They said, uh, okay, here's the pilot sighting. Object appeared to be white light, sometimes blinking and sometimes flashing rapidly. Sighting time 0147Z. Observed from airborne F-94 visually for approximately 24 minutes. And there were two pilots because in the F-94, you had a pilot and a radar operator. The pilot and observer, um, OBSV, observed the white light for approximately 24 minutes. It appeared to climb from approximately 12,000 feet slowly up to 22,000 feet. Pilot states that they orbited the object throughout the climb, attempting to get close enough to identify without success Object descended from 22,000 feet to 8,000 feet, where it went in to the overcast and was lost. Estimate closest range to the object was 200 yards. At the closest range, object appeared to have something hanging from the light, such as a string or cord. It does sound like a weather balloon, but the problem I have with this is that does not match what the weather balloon dude saw through the theodolite. He didn't see it rising and dropping this much, his weather balloon. He was watching his weather balloon, I think. I, I think that's what he saw. Or I'm pretty sure he said that. It was a weather balloon that he had released. Um, so, I mean, the it's interesting, and it's maybe plausible. Maybe he was looking at somebody else's weather balloon. I don't know. And it's it's plausible. So we'll leave that out there. But it doesn't match exactly. It was on a different time, and it was a different description of maneuverability. So here's from the 26th page, page 26 of the report. The significant point of this report is that observations were initially made just prior to and during some of the time sightings and attempted intercept were being made by F-94B aircraft of the 58th in the Boston area. These sightings by F-94s were reported by electrical means. So they're saying it's like sort of in the same time and same area, but it's not an exact match. So they're saying, you know, they're sort of lumping them together, even though I think that they're probably separate incidents. Uh, and then they're talking about the um, civilian weather observer at Logan, who reported that at 0315 to 0326 Zulu um, on the 23rd of July, which is the following evening or the following night. Um, let's see. So that, that kind of confused me because that's a different sighting, right? That's not the same. So whole that's like 24 hours later. But I don't know. It gets kind of confusing. Was it a typo? Are they talking about the same thing? I don't know. The times don't line up. 
So I think that this is possible. We're talking about multiple sightings here, but the file is not entirely clear on that. Maybe if I went through and read it with a fine tooth comb, I could figure it out. I'm not sure, but it's pretty mysterious. And it's pretty clear that we had a bunch of people on the 22nd and 23rd seeing weird shit over Boston. Right, Agent Ether? That's true. Were you there? <laughs> I don't think I was born yet. I wasn't there either. All right. On July 17th, another one. My next report, this one from Dayton, Ohio. What do we have in Dayton, Ohio? Potatoes. Right, patterson Air Force Base. Hurricanes. Tornadoes. Well, maybe those things too, but right, patterson Air Force Base. That's where Project Blue Book was. I actually was. don't think there's any hurricanes. There, there could be hurricanes. They have lakes, right? I think it's just tornadoes. You could have hurricanes forming over a lake. <laughs> I think it's called a water spout. It's a, it's a mini hurricane. Microcane? I don't know, whatever. Anyways, so July 17th, Dayton, Ohio. A witness saw eight series of objects arched across sky. This is from the, this is from the cover card. Eight series of objects arched across sky at approximately three to four minute intervals. Phenomena seemed to be over Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. The source was varied civilians, number of objects 6 to 10, rest of the card is very difficult to read, so let's get to the report. The witness was driving in their car when the witness's boys pointed out the UFO. The object moved north to south in an arched path. The object went out suddenly rather than fading away, possibly disappearing over the horizon, it didn't say. The sighting lasted 20 to 30 minutes. Eight, uh, six to ten objects in series of two, approximately 300 feet apart. And here's a quote from the sighting. Fairly bright round objects at approximately 1,000 foot altitude. No estimate of speed, but moving fast. No sound or trails. No estimate of size. Objects were not sighted all at one time. Two would appear and move across sky and disappear. Then two more, etc. Objects were round and bright with hazy glow around edges. No trails of fire assumed to be over, or no, no trails of fire assumed to be over Wright Patterson Air Force Base. No estimated altitude or speed objects made no sound. So, <coughs> excuse me. So, it sounds somewhat similar to the sighting from Mexico, where the woman just saw objects going horizon to horizon. Really, really interesting. All right, now here's another sighting. Three dark red objects with gold band through the center was seen by a draftsman civilian employee at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So this is a separate sighting at Wright-Patterson from July 28th. The rest of the cover card is not readable. That's all I could see on there. Um, there's also in this file, which is, I think this file is like 30 or 40 pages. There's another whole separate case from New York, New York, which is a photographic case just stuck in the middle of it. <laughs> and there's photos and everything. There's a oh, photo analysis. Photos. I love photos. Yeah, and you can see there's like um, a round or orb-shaped object. You'll have to excuse me. One of our cryptids is being very noisy. <laughs> Aw, Toby. He's so cute. All right. So, they're, yeah, they're photographs and stuff. And they say it's a balloon because, of course, it was. I didn't really go over that one in detail. So, um, I won't really talk about that particular case. But then... There's another file also stuck in this file, apparently, from Anchorage, Alaska. This one is really cool. During the month of July, on three different occasions, pilots and radar observers of the 66th Fighter Interceptor Squadron reported unusual radar returns 
obtained with the APG-33 airborne radars installed in the F-94 type aircraft. This says, uh, page 14, says the 5th of July, the 1st Lieutenant Thomas C. Hine, 1st Lieutenant John D. Kelly, and here's a quote, approximately 0332 Zulu in the Redoubt Bay Area, while at 5,000 feet, initial contact was made at 20,000 yards. From initial contact into 6,000 yards, the target had no apparent forward speed, but did appear to shift from side to side. Kind of weird. At 6,000 yards, the target appeared to climb with tremendous speed and was lost. A search was conducted in the area and contact reestablished about six minutes later at 18,000 yards with the same results. And no time was visual sighting made. So the comments for of the preparing officer can be found on page 15. Also later on, they repeat them for some reason. One, since three different radar observers and three different APGs, actually six different observers, three different radar sightings, and three different APG-33 radar sets were concerned in three radar contacts, it is thought, actually there's more than three radar contacts, but we'll get to that in a little bit, it is thought unlikely that radar malfunction could be the cause. Since the visibility at flight altitude in each incident was good, it is felt that had the radar return been caused by a material object, visual sighting would have been accomplished. Three, in view of paragraphs one and two above, it is believed that the radar returns were caused by some atmospheric condition or phenomenon which might be peculiar to Alaska, (laughs) might be peculiar to Alaska only, or to Alaska and the Northeast Command. (laughs) So they're saying... (laughs) Just right there. Yeah. We're saying... All right, we don't know what it is, so it's probably just some weird weather thing that only happens in Alaska. <laughs> At that specific location. Yeah, and it said Northeast Command in the report. So I don't know what that's all about because Alaska is like in the Northwest the last time I checked. So that's just a typo, I'm guessing. And I found many typos in the, in the reports, so that's not unusual at all. Maybe I've even it was the them. Northeast of the Northwest. Yeah, maybe that's what he means. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I just, I just, that just tickled me so much. It's like, yeah, in light of this, what if they didn't see it because it was invisible, but the radar still picked it up because it's a physical object. I mean, we can speculate. There's any number of reasons why they did not get a visual sight of the object. I don't know. But given the distances involved, the clear conditions and the radar returns, they should have seen something, absolutely. So I can understand why this officer would have been skeptical, right? But they're just dismissing it. They're saying, ah, the radars are broken or whatever. It's, it's kind of hilarious. All right. Page 16 is some basic report stuff about the Alaska sightings. But interestingly, handwritten on the page is FRONT-2C-11 and then in all capital, FLYING SAUCER. Ooh. Ooh, yeah, ooh is right. It's not signed. We don't know who wrote that there, but it's there, right? So despite this being a weather anomaly, somebody wrote that on the report. Why they wrote it on the report, I don't know. What does front-2C-11 mean? I don't know. It could have been written by two different people because they look like slightly different hands. Who knows? It's anybody's guess, but they wrote flying saucer right there on the page. Anyways, page 18 we get another sighting from the 21st of July, an F-94 um, being piloted by Captain Henry S. Anthony Jr. and First Lieutenant 
John T. Larkins was the radar operator. At 2110, no, at 2120 Zulu in the Beluga Lake area, while at 18,000 feet, first contact was made at 16,000 yards. Lock-on was accomplished at 12,000 yards and an intercept started. Target was level with the aircraft's speed greater than 100 knots to 6,000 yards. At this point, the target disappeared and contact could not be re-established. Pilot did not make visual sighting. At 22.18 Zulu, another attempt was made to contact the target observed earlier. While at 16,000 feet, contact was made at 12,000 yards. Lock-on was accomplished and target overtaken at 50 to 60 knots. At 1,500 yards, set action resembled normal brake lock and target was lost due to an abrupt upward motion as seen in pilot's scope. Contact was re-established at 6,000 yards and followed to 700 yards where target and aircraft speed appeared the same, 300 knots. Intercept was continued to 400 yards, at which time the target moved out rapidly to 2,300 yards where... uh, Apologies, stupid cryptids. Rapidly to 2,300 yards where speeds were again synchronized with the target moving down. Pilot nose the aircraft down, and as the speed increased to approximately 400 knots, the target was overtaken to 1,500 yards. At this time, the radar broke lock due to a rapid downward movement of the target. Contact could not be re-established. Again, no visual sighting was accomplished. During the sighting, weather was exceptionally clear with practically a cloudless sky. Does that sound like a weather anomaly to you, Agent Ether? Um, well... No. <laughs> it doesn't sound like one to me either. All right, and then the next sighting, 25th of July, F-94, piloted by Lieutenant Clayne M. Jones and Lieutenant Aubrey H. Drenner. At 820 Zulu, 0820, in the area southeast of Talksetna, uh, at 11,500 11, feet, a contact was made on a target, which appeared larger than an F-94 at 14,000 yards. Lock-on was accomplished at this time with a target speed of 40 knots greater than that of the aircraft. Aircraft speed was increased to 350 knots in a 4,200 feet per minute climb. The target was still pulling away at over 100 knots. We've seen this many times in these reports where they chase the object and it accelerates away from them. No matter how fast they go, they cannot catch it. After a climb to 18,500 feet, the target appeared to level off and increase speed. Chase was broken off at this time. Visual sighting was not accomplished. No defects were found in the radar sets aboard any of the three aircraft involved in these reports of unusual radar contacts. A check of the records in the ADCC shows no target returns that could be connected in any way with those obtained by the APG-33. Interesting. There are statements from the pilots in the file that more or less match the previous descriptions. However, there are some differences. For example, First Lieutenant Heine was scrambled. H-E-I-N-E. I don't know. I, first I said it was Hein. Then I said it's Heine. Heine's funnier. Let's do Heine. First Lieutenant Heine was scrambled to the area. So the object was probably detected before he got there. It's, so he didn't just so happen to see it. He was scrambled to the area. That's a little different than what it said before. From First Lieutenant Jones, the target painted a very clear picture on the scope. 
the picture indicated a larger type object than the F-94B, which we had been using as the target. Now, the reason I'm pointing that particular bit out is that, now I'm not a radar expert, but I have read that when you have a weather anomaly, it does not tend to be a clear picture. It tends to be like a fuzzy picture, you know? But these people all said that they saw clear objects on their scopes, not what you would normally see with a weather anomaly. Um, let's see. It's getting a little over an hour here. So I don't know that I'm going to read through all of these witness or the pilot witnesses, but let's go through this one. Uh, which one do I want to go through? Oh, this one's good. Okay. So I, John D. Kelly, first lieutenant, bloody blah, assigned to the bloody blah, um, as a radar observer at. 0317 Zulu on the 5th of July, 1952. I was scrambled by GCI on a mission fulfilling the duties of radar observer. A radar contact was made with the APG 33 at 0332 on a target previously contacted by uh, CGI. So they saw it and then they scrambled them. A target was contacted at 20,000 yards and was held in hand control at a range of 5,500 yards for approximately six minutes. The target was held at all times, approximately five degrees above our line of flight. The only apparent speed was that of the intercepting craft. However, the target was observed to swerve as if in a tight starboard to port orbit. The interception remained as described until the range had, uh, had decreased to 6,000 yards when this range was reached, the target appeared to climb at a tremendous speed. This change was so rapid that all I could do was follow on my hand control. I attempted to pick up the target on short range during this unusual change, but could not get an indication. We proceeded on course for approximately one minute, then made a 180-degree climb through a very light overcast and proceeded to search. We proceeded on an approximate um, reciprocal heading for five to six minutes, then made a 180-degree turn. Another contact was made at 18,000 yards, but interception was the same as the first one. The radar set APG-33 was not operating at good efficiency. The pickup on short range was restricted to the um, spotlighting technique to see a target only one half of the uh of the uh trace appeared at a normal intensity setting the gain retested normally the area weather consisted of a very light overcast at about six thousand feet no more than a thousand feet thick so pretty good visibility the you know radar being a little iffy is kind of an interesting thing but um Remember I mentioned earlier there might be multiple contacts. We don't know if this was the same contact or if there were multiple objects and he only saw one of them at a time. All right, and then there's... Uh, no, I, I'll just do one more little pilot one here because these are these pilot reports are really good. You dang cryptids. Why are they barking all night tonight? Silly cryptids. All right, this one is from Hen Henry S. Anthony Jr., Captain, um, assigned to the 66th Fighter Squadron based in... Almondorf Air Force Base, Alaska, 
On the 21st of July, while over the Beluga Lake area at approximately 18,000 feet, an unusual radar contact was made by aircraft number 50945 with the APG-33 radar. The first unidentified target was picked up at 18,000 yards range while flying a heading of approximately 60 degrees. A lock-on was made at 12,000 yards and the range decreased at over 100 knots to 6,000 yards, where the set broke lock and the target was lost at approximately 2120Z. The second similar target was picked up at 2218Z in the same area at 16,000 feet, but on a heading of 085 degrees. Initial contact was made at 12,000 yards with the target slightly port. This range was steadily decreased at the rate of 50 knots to approximately 1,500 yards, where the target was lost through an abrupt upward motion as seen on the pilot's scope. Immediately after losing this second target, a 360 turn was made and another contact was made at 6,000 yards. An intercept was attempted and the target was held 10 degrees port and level while range was decreased to 500 yards at the rate of 50 to 60 knots. At this range, the speeds were synchronized at approximately 300 knots and the pilot made a slight turn to center the target on the pilot's scope. The range then decreased very slowly to approximately 400 yards, held steady for 3 to 6 seconds, and began to move out very rapidly. At 3,200 yards, the speeds again were synchronized, but the target began to move downward. The aircraft was nose down in an attempt to follow, and as the airspeed increased to approximately 400 knots, the range again decreased to about 1,500 yards. At that time, the downward motion increased and the target was lost from the bottom of the scope. At no time was the target sighted visually by the crew, although visibility was unlimited. Aircraft information with 50945 did not pick up these targets. So that's a weird one. I guess there was a second aircraft in the area who didn't see the targets. They got within, what was this, uh, 400 yards of this thing? They got really close to this thing and they still didn't see it. That one, like, I'd be crapping my pants up there, man. They keep seeing these objects. They saw several of these things. Was it the same object? Was it different objects? I don't know. They seem to be playing cat and mouse with this. You know, maybe it was just a radar anomaly. Who the hell knows? That's just a, that's a really, really weird one. All right, now... We have um, a couple more pages of reports from the files. Let's see. He, this is, these are also in this file with this Alaska stuff that originally started off with, with the sighting of three red objects with the gold bands that I mentioned briefly. That was the cover page, but that's all there is. The rest of that file is missing. Where it is, I don't know. It's probably crammed into some other unrelated file. Who knows where it is? You could find it if you looked hard enough, but uh, that would take a lot of legwork, and I didn't have time for that today. Probably don't have the inclination either, although it sounded like a really interesting report. Okay, now this one is... Um, okay, and here we go. A report at 11.20, 2nd Lieutenant A.G. Fluez received a telephone call from Mr. Redacted Dayton, North Dayton View. Source is a technical draftsman, WCNSS, Building 65 WP Air Force Base. 
Uh, source and wife observed at 10.30 to 11.30, 28th of July, 1952, a bright round object. It was clear. It was a clear night. Remnants of rain clouds, but no haze. Most stars were visible. Object seemed six inches in diameter when viewed through field glasses. There was a gold band through the center. Oh, look, here it is. This is it. Okay, cool. Object under observation for one hour. After 20 minutes, source observed two similar objects, which were either smaller or of less intense brightness. All objects moved on heading of 120 degrees. The big one seemed to slow up. No sound, no speed estimate passed above some clouds color, dark red, no glow object sighted by eye and through field glasses and uh, observations confirmed by Mrs. Redacted, Source's wife, and by Redacted, neighbor of Redacted. So it looks like we had a group of people here that saw this thing. Source attended Carnegie Tech in 1917, did not graduate. Not sure how that's relevant. So there you go. That's that sighting. (laughs) That's all there is in the file. I wish there was a lot more to that one. And the last one I have for you, also in this file, there's a lot of them crammed into this file for some reason, at... Uh, 10 o'clock, a second Lieutenant A.G. Fluas received a telephone call from Mr. Redacted, a grocery store proprietor of Redacted um, from an, in Dayton, three miles southwest of Wright-Partisan Air Force Base, who said he wished to report an unidentified aerial object. While inside yard of his residence, observing stars and discussing saucers, um, oh, look, Mayer observed, that must be the guy's last name, M-A-Y-E-R, <laughs> They forgot to redact that. They do that all the time. Uh, Mayor observed visually without binoculars at 1120, 28 July, 1952, a blue, white, purple light moving on heading of zero degrees at estimated altitude of a thousand feet soundlessly at estimated velocity of four to 500 miles per hour. He did not observe the object, only the light. The light disappeared suddenly in Northeast after three seconds. Source noticed three aircraft in vicinity at time. The light maintained same brightness. Source described it as medium intensity and did not change direction or speed. Source facing southeast at all times. Source graduated from Cheminid High, C H A M I N, Chaminade High School in 1931. Source stated that light moved too fast to be an aircraft landing. Mr. and Mrs. Redacted neighbors, also Mr. Redacted, observed same phenomenon. So a completely different sighting. That's all there is. It's this page that's just sort of crammed into an unrelated file. I'm not sure why it's there, but we have another multiple witness, very, very brief brief summary, multiple witnesses, and a really interesting UFO. All right, well, that's all I got for you this time. And we barely scratched the surface of the reports in 1952, just barely, barely started. Maybe we'll do 1952 again in the future. Really interesting sightings, but that's all we got for you this time. It is, uh, it's getting on in time. It's getting late. And I think it's ready to close her down. What do you got for us? Agent ether. I got cryptids everywhere. They are. That's true. They're all over me, making me warm and sleepy. I know I'm getting sweaty. Just looking at you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anything else about uh, UFOs or cases or anything? No, this is the end of the week. All right. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Keep it strange. 
All right, well. Give a shout out to anybody who's still there. Oh, okay, we still have two people in the audience. We've got t- titanium over dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and um, what is that? Overdrive, I believe. Uh, let's see. Let me, let me click on them just to double check because I get these mixed up. Yeah, titanium override. I'm sorry, override. And Aussie Meemaw. Aussie. Thanks, thanks again for showing up, guys. We appreciate you being on our live show. Like I said earlier in the episode, I don't know if you caught it. We are going to do a video format pretty soon here. And when we do that, we are going to start going uh, live on like YouTube, maybe other places like Twitch and Facebook. I'm not sure. I have to look into that to see how easy it is to simultaneously broadcast. I'm going to have to wear makeup. I know. I might do my hair uh, and I might have to shower or something. Yeah. I don't know. Get all like dressed and stuff and stuff. Or you could just, you know, wear your pajamas. Not a big deal. That is not happening. (laughs) We could just show, you know, oh, we could put on filters. They have pretty good filters these days. You got to filter my voice too. Why is that? I sound like a dude. Like, do you want to sound like a dude or you do sound like a dude? <laughs> I don't know. I'm so tired. I don't even know. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap it up. Um, no after hours this time because Ether's tired. It's late and ETA and Kruger are slacking. So Slackers. I guess that's it for this time. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>